0: The text for today, the the focus of this passage will be taken from Nehemiah chapter 2 and we'll be looking at Nehemiah 2 in the context of the second half of verse 4 and onwards. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this week we are continuing our journey through the book of Nehemiah. Many of you, if you remember what we covered last week, it was Nehemiah chapter 1, and we looked a little bit at the background behind the book of Nehemiah. We also touched down on the theme of the book of Nehemiah, how Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. But as he is a servant to, to a king here on earth, he also shows that his ultimate allegiance is to a king in heaven. He also shows his dependence to this king throughout this book. But we can see that the foundation for that, the groundwork already laid in chapter 1. He talks about how he and his people deserve nothing. He says, I and my fathers have acted very corruptly. And so, Father, remember. So, Lord, remember. And he bases his call, his cry out to the Lord on the remembrance of the Lord, the remembrance of his promises to his people. And this brings us to our passage today. We read that this passage occurs in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. If you remember, the first one, Nehemiah 1, chapter 1, begins in the month of Kislev. For four months, Nehemiah has been praying He's been coming before the Lord. He has been begging the King of Heaven that he would answer him and that he would grant him the opportunity, begging that some way of deliverance might appear. And so he's come to the point where he realizes that he himself may have to step up to the plate. And he prays, Let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah was begging time and time again for this opportunity to arise. And yet, time and time again, he comes before the king and it seems like there is no response. And suddenly, it happens. His moment arrives. Beloved congregation, I preach to you the word of God under the following theme the King gives his reply. And we'll see, first of all, a terrifying request, and secondly, a trusting obedience. The King gives his reply. And I want us to recognize that there are two parts to this. That, yes, it's the King here on earth who's giving his reply, but ultimately, it's the King in heaven who is answering through this earthly king. But before we launch into this, brothers and sisters, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a moment about prayer. When you pray, how often do you expect a response from God? Sometimes when we pray, it's just lip service, isn't it? We tell someone, I'll pray for you. But when we do pray for them, we don't always have our heart behind it. It's just, oh yes, I remembered, I have to pray for this person. And we include their names in a prayer. Sometimes when we pray, we do it out of a sense of duty. And then if God actually carries it out, then we can see that as an added bonus. We ask, but we don't necessarily expect a response. But what about when we do get a response? Do we recognize it as such? Have we forgotten our request? Do we just shrug our shoulders and consider it good luck and move on? Not too long ago, someone I know, he wanted an opportunity to confront someone he cared about regarding a sin. He prayed that God would grant him an opportunity. Four hours later, the phone rang. And lo and behold, it's exactly the person he prayed about. God had chosen that moment to make his power known. And my friend was able to silently praise God and then proceeded to make the most of his conversation. When God responds to our prayers in such times, what is our response? Do we shy away or do we carry out our witness as a Christian thanking God and making the most of the time we have? And with that in mind, let's take a look at our passage. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. This is something that's important to note because it was a dangerous thing to be sad in the presence of the king. They had enough on their minds. They had matters of state. They had big and lofty matters that they had to care about. And so they didn't want to be bothered by your personal problems. You want to have personal problems? Well, that's fine, but you check them at the door before you come into my throne room. That was their attitude. Therefore, the king said to me, Why is your face sad, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. At this moment, you may pause and think, Nehemiah, why are you feeling frightened? Why are you scared? After all, the the king seems to be asking about your well-being, doesn't he? This is your opportunity. Take it. At the same time, while we might feel a little bit of... uh, while we might feel a little bit of almost irritation towards Nehemiah that he doesn't carry out this opportunity, that he doesn't seize on this opportunity without fear, it's a little bit comforting, isn't it? To know that one of the saints in the Old Testament struggled with fears in this way too. Brothers and sisters, do you not so often have this fear when you yourself run into a sudden answer to prayer? It's one thing if you are praying for, for example, for someone to get better. But it's quite another if you're praying, as Nehemiah here is, that you can get involved in kingdom work, that you can get involved in perhaps sharing the gospel with a friend, a neighbor, or a relative, or that you can confront somebody who is in the church who has fallen into sin. At this time, when we get this answer to prayer, it can be a frightening thing. So isn't it comforting to know that there are other people in the Bible, saints in the Old Testament, who have struggled with this very same issue? But having that in mind, we also need to recognize that Nehemiah had even more reason to be frightened than the average believer. To understand the situation that Nehemiah finds himself in, you need to first understand the kind of kings that ruled Persia. Artaxerxes' dad was the famous Xerxes, the one who tried to invade Greece and was held off by 300 Spartans, among other troops. Let me tell you about two stories. Let me tell you two stories about Xerxes to give you a bit of an idea of the kind of man that ruled Persia. A lesser known story is one when he was marching on his way to invade Greece. He reached the Hellespont, a body of water which connects the Black Sea to the Aegean Sea, part of the Mediterranean. Immediately, he made his engineers build a bridge to cross this body of water. The Greek historian Herodotus writes that no sooner had this bridge been built than a great storm swept down and destroyed the bridge. This king grew furiously angry. After the storm had subsided he made his men march down to the river's edge throw in foot shackles and start beating the water with whips saying, what have I done against you? What has this great king done against you O water? That you have unjustly punished him even though he's done you no wrong. Xerxes the king will pass over you whether you wish it or not. And then after that He took all of the engineers aside who had worked on the first bridge and he killed them all. A little while later, after he had built the bridge with his next round of engineers, he was marching on. And while he was moving on, he was busy collecting noblemen for his war. One more region that he passed through was in Lydia, the region of Lydia. There was a nobleman there with five sons who decided to host Xerxes. He hosted them with a lavish feast, and he really wanted to gain the king's favor. Well, he succeeded. The king was very happy. And so seeing the king being in good spirits, he decided to ask the king a question. The king, thinking that he knew what his servant was going to ask, what this nobleman was going to ask, said, sure, I'll answer the question. I'll give you whatever you want. This nobleman made the mistake of asking the king that one of those five sons that he had could stay behind to take care of him in his old age. King Xerxes flew into a rage He ranted and he railed at that man. And then he said, you want your son to stay here? Fine. He cut him in half, put either side on either side of the road, and had his army march through the middle. This was the kind of king that Nehemiah was facing These were men who very easily flew into rages, who made life and death decisions based on the fact of how they were feeling that day. If they were angry, then you could face some serious consequences. And so when he comes before the king, and he's tried so hard for so long to stay Happy in the king's presence, even though for four months he has been mourning. For four months he has been coming before the Lord time and time again. And it seems that nothing is working. For four months he has been fasting. His face is getting gaunt because of the fact that he has been limiting the amount of food that he's been taking in. So of course he's sad. But he's managed to hold that off now. But suddenly the king looks at him and the king notices. And he is terrified. He is rightly terrified. He was in danger of losing his life. And yet Nehemiah speaks. He says, So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, What do you request? Nehemiah recognizes that this is an opening. And yet he also recognizes that danger that he is in. He recognizes that God has granted him the opportunity. But he also sees that there could be consequences to his particular request. And so he begins with a line that immediately shows respect. Talking in the formal way of the ancient world with flowery language. Showing that he's used to dealing with the rulers of his day. He also speaks in a way that shows wisdom. If you'll notice in his request here, in his comment here, he doesn't refer to the words Jerusalem or Judah. They don't show up in his comments. There are two reasons for this. The first would be that if there is a fallout from his request, the country that he loves won't suffer the consequences of his actions. Some of you may remember what happened centuries before in Egypt when Moses approached the Pharaoh on Israel's behalf. Pharaoh doubled the workload of the Israelites and took away any aid that his own people gave to their work. Nehemiah was making sure that if anything happened to him after he made this statement before the king, his own people wouldn't feel the consequences. They wouldn't suffer the consequences. Secondly, it's a political ploy. Nehemiah is speaking in a way that the Persian king would understand. He doesn't make it immediately political. He doesn't bring up a particular state, a city state, or the city itself. But he makes it personal for the king of Persia. He speaks in a way that the king of Persia will understand. He says, Your, you would suffer in the same way if you were facing this. How can I do anything but be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and the gates are burned with fire? The language that is used here shows that Nehemiah recognizes what has happened here is an opportunity granted by the Lord. But he also recognizes that God teaches us not to speak recklessly. As Jesus later puts it, we must be wise as serpents, yet innocent as doves in our dealings with those around. We have that in our dealings with those around, sometimes in our own lives as well. When an opportunity arises for us to speak with them, when we receive that answer to prayer, well, we aren't called to immediately jump in and start hammering those people over the head, but to be wise in the way that we deal with them. Now, it might be easy to pat Nehemiah on the back right now. Great job on overcoming your fears, Nehemiah. But that wouldn't be right, would it? As we've seen earlier, the whole point of the book of Nehemiah is to point us away from Nehemiah, the man himself, and to the king he serves, the true king that he serves. In the reply, of this king to Nehemiah, we see the reply of the true king in heaven. In the reply of Artaxerxes, we see another reply that's coming to Nehemiah. After months of constant prayers and petitions, of fasting and pleading with God, Nehemiah may serve a king here on earth, but he is a servant of the king of heaven first and foremost, and so he acts. When he sees this opportunity arise, he acts not because he overcomes his fear, but his king, having acted, having given him the opening, has overcome his fear. And so he speaks to this earthly king he serves in the strength supplied by the king of heaven. Nehemiah is acting in obedience to God, recognizing that God has opened the way, and now he's called to respond. the truth of this obedient dependence comes out in his very next move. He prays. And so I prayed to the king of heaven, to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Have you ever done this? Have you ever had a moment that you stopped and you just shot up a prayer to heaven in that instant? Nehemiah sends up an instant prayer to heaven and makes his request. Again here, he shows his dependence on God. He recognizes that this opportunity didn't come because of his own maneuvering, but because God moved the heart of the king to ask him. He also recognizes that the outcome of this conversation won't rest on the result of Nehemiah's wise words. Instead, he recognizes the truth that we find in Proverbs 21, verse 1. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. Even when acting in response to God's answer to prayer, Nehemiah sees the importance of asking him for wisdom in responding to the opportunity that he has given. He carries on. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set him in time. Then we read of a series of requests that are made for him, that are made of him. Requests for safe passage, requests for timber, and requests for support in building the temple, the city wall, and the house. What we can see here is that Nehemiah is a faithful servant of the king. He's close to him, and the king will grant him his request. But he doesn't want to lose someone that he relies on for too long. This gives us a bit of a picture into the influence of the character of Nehemiah. By by his obedience before the Lord, he was able to become an influence for good in the court of the king. An influence that would be missed. Nehemiah also makes it clear by his response that in his time of mourning and prayer, he's been planning and preparing. He recognizes that his obedience before God would lead him into a potentially tense and difficult situation. It would be easy for him to stay in the lap of luxury in the Persian court. He was at the top of his game. This was one of the most powerful empires in the world at that day. And he was the advisor. He was a man who was close to the king. The most powerful man in the world at the time. He lived a good life. He lived a life in luxury, in wealth. He would have been working in circles where men were influential, privileged, and could do so much. And yet he's willing to give it all up. He's willing to make the step to face poverty, hardship, and opposition in the name of the Lord. He did it in the name of the Lord. In the recognition that the answer to his prayer seemed to be to obediently sacrifice this life of luxury that he left behind. That his position and his comforts in the court of Arctic Xerxes. To take advantage of this opportunity granted him by the Lord and to go back. You would think at this point in time, early on, that Nehemiah would just quit while he's ahead, take what he can and quit while he's ahead. But he recognizes that there's more at work behind the scenes. He has seen that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he knows what is required for further development of kingdom work. Now that the Lord has made it clear that he has opened this avenue, that he has softened the heart of the king, then Nehemiah drives home with another request, another series of requests. He's going to trust and obey, recognizing that the Lord, who kept him safe in his initial encounter, will keep him safe as he carries on this continued kingdom work. So he asks for letters to be commissioned, that he may travel safely, as we saw in our summary. He also asks for wood. These are bold requests, but both of them absolutely guarantee that the king of Persia is 100% behind what Nehemiah is doing. Any building of the gates or walls that would happen wouldn't be seen as rebellion, but they would be seen as obedience to the king himself. As the king himself commissions it, it is an obedience to a royal decree. Brothers and sisters, marvel at this. This clear representation of the king's goodwill is nothing more than the work of the Lord. And Nehemiah confesses this as such. He says, the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. He recognizes that none of this is due to his own personal persuasiveness at work. None of this is due to his own influence on the king. He can take credit for no part of this. As he said in chapter 1, he deserves nothing. All that has happened is a testament to his dependence on the goodness of God. Everything is due to his king in heaven. Then finally we read, I went to the governors, in verse 9, I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Nehemiah has received everything that he could desire and more. God has answered his prayer in a more powerful way than his wildest imagination could conceive. Yet, that still doesn't mean that his way is completely clear before him. As we go through these next verses in the book, we see the stage being set for the next scene. Wherever kingdom work will happen, Satan will rise up to oppose it. And we can see that he is rising up to oppose it here with the introduction of Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official. This is a universal truth that we recognize in our own day as well, isn't it? When we step up to be involved in kingdom work, whether it's going to the far side of the world to serve in a mission field, or whether it's Staying here at home and taking care of covenant children in the home. Satan will do his best to oppose us. And I want you to recognize one thing in particular here as well. The name of the Ammonite official that is granted, that is shown us here. Does it look somewhat familiar? Familiar? It's Tobiah. The reason this looks familiar is because we do find it elsewhere in Scripture. This is a Hebrew name. Tobiah is a Hebrew. His name means Yahweh is good. This is a man that you would expect as a member of the church of God to be a great supporter of kingdom work. And yet, he stands in opposition to the Lord's work. So we can see that Satan uses not just outside influences, But sometimes when we pray for God to use us in his kingdom building work and God does open an opportunity for us, then there will be influences from inside. It's easy to say when God opens opportunities for us, Lord, we'll take it from here. Or if not, then after we've been granted the strength to take advantage of the opportunity, we'll think, thanks Lord, I can take it from here. Or maybe even if we've been granted the resources and the support that's beyond our wildest dreams, we say, Lord, this is awesome. Thank you so much. I'll take it from here. But what we can see here from the opposition that is given, from the opposition of Sanballat the Horonite, from the opposition of Tobiah the official, those who are outside the church and those who are within the church, we can see that God calls on us to rely on him at all times. Even in the final stages, the people of God cannot get complacent or proud, but must always be dependent. This can feel overwhelming at times, can't it, brothers and sisters? How can we stay positive and have the courage to even begin with kingdom work if this constant work is against us? Well, at this point, we can remember the words of Jesus in John 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Yes, we may face opposition from the world. Yes, we may face opposition from within the church when we begin to be involved with kingdom work, there will be tribulation. But don't give up. Don't give up. We have a king who has all authority in heaven and on earth placed under his feet. We have a king who ultimately holds all of history in his hand. He is the one who is in control of the heart of the king, being able to bend it whichever way he pleases. And he is the one who is personally invested in his people in his kingdom. So when we pray to get involved with work that will further his kingdom, though this world may rage against us, we may know that he is in our corner and he is on our side. We may have kings against us. We may have rulers against us. We may have Satan himself, the prince of the power of the air, standing against us, fighting to overcome us. But we ourselves have a king who has an unstoppable kingdom, whose power is infinite and who will win out in the end. Yes, we'll have tribulation. Yes, we'll have hardship. But we step back from the story. We step back from the narrative that we see in front of us, whether it be here or in our lives, and we recognize that it's ultimately the Lord who is in control and that we can trust that he will work out all things for the good of those who love him. Amen.